thanks for joining me, everyone, for another episode of Dev Technologies DevCast. Today, I'm joined by Zach Lawrence. Uh, he is our IT support manager here at Dev Technology. And as always, I am Adam D'Angelo hosting today's DevCast. Uh, my partner, John Janik, couldn't be here today. Um, but I wanted to have Zach in anyway and chat with him a little bit about uh, his recent preparation for the AWS Solution Architect Associate exam. Um, and before we get to that, I really just want to talk a little bit more about your background, Zach, because I know not only are you a kind of a lifelong learner, you have a slew of certifications, uh, but you also do some teaching as well. So I'll just kind of kick it over to you and, and let you tell me a little bit more about yourself. Thank you for having me on DevCast. Uh, I started teaching in 1999, two years after I entered IT. I've taught everything from A-plus to... Uh, cloud uh, foundations for AWS, and I'm a big believer that you just have to get your hands dirty, so prepping for this certification, uh, I would spin up instances of various things and just tinker with them. So when I studying for cloud foundations, I spun up a relational database and populated it with Pokemon data. And I spun up a blog. Do I? Do you want to? Because the blog's public, so people could go out and look at it. Yeah, feel free to share. Oh, so it. it's um, some traffic to your blog. Yeah, that would actually be good because <laughs> it's kind of obscure. So it's all all dash things dash Japanese dot com. All right, and what what are we going to find on this blog? Uh, I assume the title speaks for itself. Uh, stuff about Japan, stuff about travel, and stuff about tech, obviously, since I do tech for a living. Though, and I also spun up a static S3 bucket website. So that kind of was a foundation. And then I was able to learn, basically, I believe the AWS certs are a vocabulary race. You really have to have a good understanding of the vocabulary in order to pass these exams. And I've been taking certs long enough that I believe now I can defeat some of the exams. But if you don't have an understanding of the vocab, you have no chance. So uh, I've really focused on learning the vocab. Right, so I sat for uh, the AWS uh, Cloud Practitioner exam. And, and you're absolutely right. A lot of it's the vocab. Um, you know, this the AWS cloud environment in particular is a lot of the same stuff we've been using um, in physical data centers for years, just named something slightly different now um, that there are managed services or, or even the non-managed services uh, also have their own nomenclature, but it, it maps almost one-to-one -to, -one to some of the th stuff that we're very familiar with in the past. We just have to learn the, the AWS vernacular for it. But moving into... The Solution Architect Associate, you know, th there is a little bit more of how you should architect a system by AWS's, um, what do they call it, the, the, the well-architected framework, right? Yes. So you have to learn those five pillars um, and sort of make sense of things from how AWS feels you should be architecting systems. You, you told me that you didn't really study for the Solution Architect Associate exam at all. Um, in fact, you just went in and took the exam blindly to see how you did to help you um, determine where you should spend your time studying and focusing. So how did that go? What was that experience like? And what did you learn from it? So I've taken 
the exam twice. I took the first edition uh, maybe six months ago, and the score was not bad for not putting any effort into it. <laughs> I learned that I don't have a good understanding of the vocabulary that, that Amazon is using. And uh, although I've been in IT for a long time, they've kind of taken the quarter and flipped it on its head. Mm. So to uh, really um, maybe trademark would be a good word, the the different services that Amazon um, offers. So how am I going to go forward? And so the second attempt was a beta, and I didn't pass the beta. Which is the site? Which the new exam starts March twenty second. Uh, how how am I going to proceed from here to get this done before March twenty second? Uh, really, it boils down to taking the AWS official curriculum book and looking at the back of the chapter, not necessarily the practice test questions, but there's exam essentials that walk you through each of their services really buckling down and learning the terminology and a very high level of what they do, and then going in and taking practice test questions in like Linux Academy or A Cloud Guru until I can get above 80%. And at that point, actually, usually it's higher. Uh, usually you want to get above 90% on a practice test, and then you're pretty much assured of passing the actual test, but I'm going to shoot for 80 and see if I can get it done. When I took Linux Plus, I was down in the 60s and I was able to get it done because I was real good at the hands-on. That's kind of in a nutshell how I'm going to proceed. Um, also, we were told in class that you should spin up and tinker with VPCs over and over again. I think he said... Uh, you should do it at least 20 times to become familiar with that architecture. Right, so you mentioned the class. Um, so we had brought an instructor in here to Dev Technology, and I think there were 14 of us uh, who sat through the TLG, the learning groups, solution architecture, associate preparation for the exam uh, course. It was a three-day, uh, all-day class um, taught by uh, Richard... Um, I forgot his last name. I'm blanking on it, but he was a fantastic instructor. Yes, he was. I, I thought I thought the the hands-on labs were great. I thought the the instruction was fantastic. Um, what were some of your key takeaways that Richard shared with us um, that might influence how you're going to prepare for the exam or how you might use AWS in the future? So, for I believe it's don't quote me, but I think it's the queuing service. He listed that you needed to know different variables like the min, the max. Uh, for the queuing service. He also uh, walked us through, in addition to just the standard AWS formatted class, he walked us through uh, specifically what we needed to know for the exam without actually giving away the prize, right? <laughs> it, it, to say he was a, a, a good uh, instructor, having taught for... Um, you know, 20 some years, I pulled him aside and told him you're exceptional. So he was really, really good. Yeah, I, I, I second that. I thought he was fantastic. I know we gave him great feedback um, when we were asked for uh, 
the opportunity to rate his uh, teaching ability. And uh, I know we, we were very happy with uh, his instruction. Uh, and I second what you said. I, I think he did a great job of teaching us about the different AWS services and how to consider them when architecting a solution while simultaneously helping us get prepared for an exam, right? You know, I think there are different types of courses that you might opt for um, to teach a, a group of folks a technology. And sometimes they're geared specifically towards passing a certification. And sometimes they're geared specifically towards learning a topic. Um, and it's really not to say that one's better than the other. I, I personally would always lean towards learning a topic in depth than simply getting a certification. Uh, but I thought Richard did a great job of preparing us for that certification exam. Uh, I know we are, we're currently four for four. Uh, okay. The four individuals who I know at Dev Technology who have taken the exam have passed, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, so, so, so far, so good. Um, I know that you, myself, uh, I know Kurt, we're all looking to sit for this in the next couple of weeks because we want to take this um, the first version of the exam, which I think you said runs till March, March 22nd. 22nd. Um, yeah, based off of your feedback that it gets significantly more difficult, or, or maybe it just changes, and you know, if we're, if we're studying for one exam and it changes on us, we don't want to be blindsided. So uh, we're definitely looking forward to uh, getting some more solution architects in the fold here. What were some things that we learned in the class or that you learned in the class that you kind of immediately went back to, you know, managing our internal AWS environments here at Dev Technology and started putting into practice um, immediately? And I know the answer to a few of those, but I'd love to hear some of the other things that you've been thinking about or working towards. So coming, commenting on specifics of how we have the internal systems architected, I'm going to pass on. I'm not going to divulge that, but um, specifically we're looking at um, changing the hierarchy, like adding some OUs, adding some sub-accounts, and really the class helped build confidence in me that I'm not going to go in and really mess something up. You know, it, it it's also kind of, um, I'll keep it PG, but in seat time where you know, the class helped get you hands-on experience with the actual technology. Back to what you said earlier about several of us are still going to take the exam and we're four for four, so my thought was no pressure on the rest of us, right? Hey, a little pressure is good motivation. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't want to break that hot streak. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Well, I agree with you that uh, I, I think one of the nice things that came out of the exam is, is that formal guidance um, that gives uh, an increased sense of confidence, right? You know, I think we have all played with AWS for years at this point um, and successfully, frankly, right? Uh, I was just chatting with Parga and Kevin on our previous podcast session, chatting about uh, a migration of a suite of 25, you know, mission critical applications to the cloud and, and kind of learning on the fly, right? Um, which kind of lends itself to the seat time. Um, but one of the takeaways that Parget had was kind of understanding the, the formal features of AWS is very critical to making trade-off decisions, especially when migrating from a physical data center into a virtualized environment or specifically into the AWS environment. How do you pick and choose what to use? Um, you know, what do the different thresholds and, and, and toggles mean? Uh, so, so some of that stuff is very important. And I think we did learn a lot of that in the class, which now gives us the confidence. Um, you know, I know we've been talking internally about 
AWS governance and cloud governance in general, right? Particularly around our dev technology cloud accounts, right? We, we are definitely now moving towards a more formal structured process of managing these accounts. And I think a lot of that is due to the confidence that you and our extended team has. So we can kind of build a cohort of folks to help that governance process along. And the other thing that I think was a, a great benefit from the, the, the three-day class and the certifications, not only is there a confidence, but I think there's a, a increased desire, right? You spend all that time in class, all that time studying, prepping for an exam, and now you're just hungry to use that knowledge, right? I mean, that, that's where the fun is. So, you know, I've seen that from you. I know, you know, David Parker and Alan Choa, I mean, they're, they're eager to continue getting more and more hands-on and in the weeds in AWS. Would you agree with that? Yeah, wholeheartedly. So uh, actually on that note, it's really interesting how the cloud environment, this is roughly equivalent to when we went from centralized to distributed computing. It's that big of a game changer. And and so um, for me personally, when I get the essay exam done, I'm going to start in on Azure and go through the same process there to kind of be well-balanced. We use both in our environment, so you got to know both. And again, it's a vocabulary race again on Azure because it's the same, you know, they have the same types of elements as AWS does, but it's called something different. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Um, and don't forget about Google's uh, yeah. cloud environment as well. The GCP is going to become a player down here in the in the Beltway uh, yes, very soon. One of the most interesting things I think with this change of computing to the cloud, um, particularly from my perspective as you know a lifelong application developer, right? I'm I'm not an infrastructure manager. I've never been a network engineer, but I've developed applications for pretty much my entire career, and. The way that you can architect applications now in the cloud using various managed services, different size instances, auto-scaling groups, forces developers now to change the way that they think about developing a solution, right? It is now absolutely critically important to think about the underlying infrastructure, virtual or not, while developing this application um, to leverage some of these benefits, right? Um, If you know that you're going to have a very peaky application, meaning that, you know, during um, different times of the year or different times of the day, you're going to have extreme workloads, which is probably true of many, you know, nine to five business applications that we support in the federal space. You know, there are certain considerations that you might make in order to save money for our customers or to provide, you know, different levels of availability. So I think that was one of my big learning opportunities that came out of the training for me, um, really forcing me to think about that a little bit more. So a takeaway on that on that same vein. So what about point of presence? The fact that you can have edge content in, uh, I think it's 114 different points of presence in the world right now. Uh, don't quote me on the exact number, but I think I'm close. And uh, in a former life, I was in the commodity industry. So latency really matters. So if you have a, an application that requires ultra-low latency, you can spin it up in a different region in the world. Obviously, for GovCloud, that doesn't... We're a little limited. Yeah, limited. But other commercial ventures, 
absolutely different locales would provide better latency trade-offs. I think that that's a really neat feature of the environment. So drawing this back to my teaching experience, uh, one of the things I like to have students do or that I demonstrate is spinning up uh, E2 instance, EC2 instance in uh, Singapore, and then do a trace route back to the firewall at the wherever we're located. And it really shows, it shows all the hops and it shows the latency. And you can actually prove to students, yes, you can spin up a virtual machine in another region in a matter of minutes and you can prove it to them. Yes, this really is in Singapore. I find that from a t- just from a teaching standpoint that that's fascinating that uh, you can do all kinds of things in the Amazon Cloud or in Azure or in Google's solution that really help in the learning process. So one thing I didn't mention is I also teach a graduate school class, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a leveler for students that are getting a master's degree. It's meant to be real hands-on, so it has little elements of various things like programming and Linux hardening and things that they're actually going to have to do because it's quite a hands-on master's degree. The last semester, uh, I inserted a project for them to spin up something in AWS, specifically Linux-based, and then harden it. And I didn't really care what they specifically did as long as they could document each step and tell me in a queer way what they did and how they got there. Mm -hmm. Just worlds apart from 20 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, No, and you uh, you bring up a great point that AWS works as a great playground to do hands-on testing of a lot of this different type of infrastructure or networking work. And I think the best thing is, you know, the AWS free tier. I mean, anybody listening to this, anybody at Dev Technology or beyond, you know, go out there, sign up, you know, with your Dev Tech email address, your personal email address, and create an account. For one year, there are free tier services available to you to use. Yes, you'll have to put in your credit card. Yes, you should probably set some sort of monitoring and alerts um, through CloudWatch to make sure that, you know, if you spend more than $5 in one day that uh, you're getting an email because you can accidentally spend a lot of money, um, even in the free tier. But if you don't have any of those unhappy accidents, you're certainly going to have a great free playground. Because like you were saying earlier, Zach, the best way to learn probably almost anything in technology is to get hands-on and AWS realizes this and that's why they offer this this free tier of support um, and service uh, for for new users you know going back to something that we, we were talking about earlier I think there's an interesting conversation to be had around when to use um, some cloud native functionality versus um, maybe what was we'll call a agnostic functionality right AWS provides some interesting capabilities for serverless computing uh, with AWS Lambda. Now, I know you're currently not, you know, you work on internal IT support here at Dev, so you don't 
necessarily. And I'm not a developer. You're not a developer, <laughs> and, and, and you're currently not in, on any of our contracts having to listen to some of our customers' constraints. But with your background in IT and knowledge, um, is there anything in your mind that would prohibit your decision-making or when, when it comes to selecting cloud-native functionality versus maybe cloud-agnostic functionality? Stump the professor. We can, we can edit out this pause and okay. to make it, or we can leave it there and make it sound really dramatic, Zach, whatever you want. Maybe edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about multi-cloud and hybrid cloud, of course. I think there's going to be a number of our customers who are looking, and potential customers who are looking to keep their own data centers, but leverage um, multiple cloud providers, right? Maybe it's AWS, Azure, um, and GCP. But, you know, so, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is, you know, tying your application to something like um, an S3 bucket and Lambda, right? Versus maybe a more, what we'll call a traditional architecture of a Java application with an Oracle database, right? You know, there are different ways to do that. And I think there's a little bit of fear for some of our customers saying, okay, well, we're going to move to this serverless, you know, Lambda function, you know, uh, Lambda functions for functions as a service, and we'll use, um, you know, S3 buckets and Athena for, you know, querying, right? I mean, I, I think they're, they view that as vendor lock-in, and, you know, we've helped so many of our customers with modernizations and migrations over the years, getting away from specific platforms, uh, looking at you, Big Blue, and uh, and I, I think there's, there's some fear that, you know, they don't want to get locked onto AWS specifically. Um, so they might stick with maybe a more costly and less efficient and less effective solution, such as, you know, a large EC2 instance running a monolithic application with a, uh, an Oracle database because they feel like there's less lock-in to AWS as a vendor. You know, so let's look at it from a security standpoint. The example of a large... EC2 instance with an Oracle database, that doesn't leverage what the cloud offers from a security standpoint where you can do NACLs and security groups on both subnets and EC2 instances where specifically you can do the security group and string a bunch of firewalls along, to put it in a more generic term, and lock it down specifically only allowing the next a link in the chain of armor access to what it needs to do. When I didn't understand the cloud very well a couple of years ago, uh, I always thought that on-prem was more secure than the cloud. And really the way the vendors have it architected, probably cloud is as or more secure if it's set up right and doing basically an on-prem imp implementation in the cloud probably isn't the best way to architect it. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I, you know, I, I think over time, you know, a lot of our customers will probably come to see it that way as well. You know, I think there's always a fear of change and um, a desire to stay with what you know. Um, even in, even in this, in the midst of moving from a physical data center to the cloud, it's still, well, let's keep some of our systems architectures using kind of this old model. But I, I think that will change. 
when some acceptance is there. You know, the other aspect of it is that vendor lock-in perspective. And, you know, from my perspective, um, yeah, you're going to get locked into something, right? Whether it's AWS or, or Java or Oracle, right? You know, if you pick any of those things, you're, you're committing to it in some way, shape, or form, right? Um, so it's always a good reminder that as, you are, as you're developing an application solution, decoupled, loosely coupled points of integration are always critical to allowing you to make changes later on. Sure, there might be a little bit more time and consideration that you have to put in upfront to understand where those decoupling points are, but it, it's worth it to have that flexibility in almost all cases. So Agreed. So, Zach, before I let you go, um, I want to ask you one more question. I have a whole suite of Raspberry Pi 4s uh, sitting in our dev lab uh, that, that John was nice enough to pick up for everybody who sits for the exam, right? We're, we're trying to motivate people to get in there and sit for the exam because I, I have so much confidence in you guys passing these exams that I know that if you sit there, you, you've earned one of these. So my question to you is, what will you do with your Raspberry Pi? You want to hear what we've done with the Raspberry Pis before in in a past life? Yeah. yeah you, so I you was on that. a government grant project where we taught Linux, specifically Kali Linux, to middle school and high school students using Raspberry Pis. So what am I going to do with my own Raspberry Pi? Um, probably uh, I, a weather station sounds kind of cool. I have this idea. I also have a G, G, uh, GSM shield mm. for a Raspberry Pi. Uh, I taught ethical hacking for six years, and so a use for a Raspberry Pi would also be to um, basically add the GSM shield and uh, write some commands on the uh, on Linux using Kali to have a little hacking station where you drop it behind the copy machine and plug it into the network and then you can remote into it over the GSM. So, but I probably won't get that far. I'll probably stick with a weather station. <laughs> so, all right. Well, uh my boss is giving me interesting looks. <laughs> Right. Well, I think I think for today we're going to leave it there. Uh, Zach, thanks so much for joining us uh, today on DevCast, and uh, you know, good luck when you sit for the exam. Thank you so much. Take care.